You're listening to Answering Difficult Questions Biblically, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. All right, we started last week into a question about eternal security. And last week, I made a case for eternal security that the believer is eternally, eternally secure in the relationship with Christ. Once you are born again, once the Spirit of God indwells you, then that never leaves. You cannot be unborn again. And, and we went to a number of different verses, but I just want to remind you that I think that the main reason that this is where I fall is not so much just from one or two proof texts where you find like one verse that seems to indicate your position, but because the nature of the gospel is such that Jesus Christ is the one who accomplishes it all. That the only thing I ever bring to the gospel is my sin and a need for a gospel. And, and that it is not me who saves myself. It's nothing to do with my good works. And so therefore, my works have nothing to do with keeping me saved once I am saved. I also think that the nature of the gospel is such that it creates a new creation. That it's not just oh, this person now has a ticket to a different place. He's exchanged tickets, now he was going to hell, but now he's going to heaven. Great, that's awesome. But he could lose that ticket at any time. It's it's not um, just this minor change, but that this person is now alive in Christ, is now a new creation, a new creature, is now indwelt by the Spirit of God. And and all of those things seem to indicate that that it's not just that we are... uh, changing where we might go eventually, but that we are something brand new right now, that we already have our home in heaven, and that it's just all all that lies between us and and us being in heaven is time. It has nothing to do with whether or not we stay, all right? But having said that, I think it's very important to remember that the Bible also indicates that a true believer will bring forth fruit. It's necessary. It's not necessary to be saved, but it is a necessary byproduct of salvation. In other words, it's, it's not something you could not do. So you could not be born again and then choose for the rest of your life never to produce any fruit at all. Because James would say that that's not real faith. That faith is dead. It's alone. You, you don't have faith if there's not some byproduct of that faith. Um, and so... I know that if you're, if, and if anybody is, is interested in this subject, they're going to say, yeah, but what about this verse? What about this verse? And I, I completely understand that. And I got to tell you, I grew up, and there's so many wonderful things about the church that I grew up in. But one of the things about the church and even the school that I first went to is I found that they treated opposing arguments as foolish instead of honestly diving into the arguments and trying to, to understand them and trying to see if they're real. And, and I think part of that was an attempt to um, uh, protect people. They were worried like, hey, if, if we really dive in deep into the opposing argument side, then what if someone's swayed into that side? Uh, and, and I guess I understand that, but I don't think it's the right way of going about it. And I don't think, I don't want our, our teenagers or growing up and thinking that, um, they were presented all of this, and now they're, they're seeing an opposing view, and all of a sudden, everything that they were ever taught 
comes into question because they didn't realize that there was really good opposing arguments to some of these things. So there are good opposing arguments, and I think it's important to get into them. And so that's what we're going to try and do today. I did have a plan to get through a few different questions today. I don't think that's going to happen. I was looking at my notes last night, and then again this morning, it's like, this is going to take a bit. All right, so if you have your Bible, first you can go to Philippians 4.3. As we turn there, just a reminder of a few things. That there is a judgment on believers. And so when the Bible speaks about judgment on believers, it doesn't, it, it's not eternal judgment. It's not great white throne judgment. It's, ju- it's not judgment in hell. But there is a judgment of our works. And some of them will be bor- burned up. And some of them will be rewarded. And so that, remember that we sit before the, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And that, so when the Bible talks about judgment of Christians, it's not, like, there's not wrong in thinking that there is. Also remember to interpret what is ambiguous by what's clear. So if something seems really confusing, it doesn't make sense, go back to what's clear and make sense of it. Uh, also, always remember that salvation will have enduring fruit. All right, so the first question we're going to look at, and the first topic is, Found in Philippians 4.3, it says, And I urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, that, that seems simple enough. Here's some women that he's referring to, and their names are written in the book of life. The problem comes later on in the book of Revelation where it talks about people's names being blotted out of the book of life. But before we get there, I think... The question that I have first is, Paul, what is the book of life? Like, where did you just come up with that idea? Because this is the first time that the book of life altogether in the New Testament occurs. Well, I think it comes maybe from Paul's understanding of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 31, Moses returns to the Lord and says, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a god of gold. So you know that story, that... Moses comes down from the mountain, and he's got the Ten Commandments, and as he comes down, he finds the people have uh, left worshiping God. At least they, they stopped waiting to worship God, but they created their own God and started to worship the golden calf. And so this is what Moses finds. Verse 32 says, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which is written. So he says, God, I know they're horrible, I know they're awful, but please forgive their sin, and if you won't, just take me with them. Blot me out of your book of life. Or out of your book, the book that you've written. doesn't say book of life. Verse 33 says, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Okay. Now what this indicates is that people are already, all of Israel there is already written in the book of life, and that there's a possibility of being blotted out of that book, okay? And then what God says to Moses is that all who sins against him will be blotted out of the book. So he doesn't actually fully answer Moses. He doesn't say, Moses, don't worry, you're not going to be blotted out, they're not going to be blotted out, or, hey, don't, Moses, like, everybody's already out. What he says is all people who sin are blotted out. Deuteronomy 29.20 says, The Lord will not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in the book would settle upon him, and the Lord would blot his name from under heaven. There, he's, where he talks about blotting someone's name from under heaven, we find out in the previous verse, he's talking about uh, a person who 
makes it, the, understands the covenant with God, makes the covenant with God, and then acts as though he's kept the covenant, even though he actually hasn't. Even though, and, and it's actually kind of funny. Um, he says, so it may not happen, in verse 19, when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself with his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart. So he doesn't want people to be able to say like, oh, this is wonderful, I, I, I've, I'll, I'll have this wonderful peace, even though what they've done is whatever their heart wanted to do. So he wants to make it very clear with Israel that if you sin, here's the covenant. There's blessing for obedience, but there's a curse for disobedience. And he doesn't want anybody to be confused. If you follow your own heart, then you follow in the curse side. And so he, he says, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. So that's, that's what it's like. It's like you are completely drunk, and yet you're pretending as you like fall over and slur your words and, 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 and have no idea what's going on. You're pretending as if you're perfectly sober. Like, don't act like you don't have sin when clearly you have sin. And that's the person who is blotted out. Psalm 69, 28, let, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not written with the righteous. This is um, David talking about his enemies. It's an imprecatory psalm. He's, he's praying that God will judge his enemies. He wants them to be blotted out of the book of living, not written with righteous. Now, all of these things, all of these verses so far indicate that there is already a book that includes everyone's name, including the enemies of David, but that he, the way that you don't go to heaven is that you're blotted out, okay? That's how some people would understand it. Yeah, by not receiving Christ. That, and that might be how some would understand it. Um, yeah, sorry, the question is, uh, does that mean that all are destined for heaven, but that some will not go there because they choose not to receive the Lord? And, and that's, that's a good thought. But one of, the, one of the things I think is interesting is when, Lord, when the Lord answers Moses, he says, whoever has sinned against me. Everybody that sins against God is blotted out of the book. That's, that's kind of the standard that he has for blotting out. So if you sinned, you're out, right? That's what that seems to indicate. Yes. Um, okay, so, so and then again in Daniel, and there's a couple other, like, Maybe it's referencing that in the Old Testament, but Daniel 12, 1, those who will be delivered are those that are found in the book. And so it never actually says book of life there in the Old Testament, but it is pretty clear that this is probably the same book that Paul is referencing. He just names it the book of life. Even Jesus in Luke 20, verse, or first, chapter 10, verse 20, says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, even if you were like able to be in charge of, of the whole spirit realm, if you could tell angels and demons what to do, that wouldn't be worth rejoicing about. There's something greater to rejoice about, and that's that your names are written in the book of heaven. So when Paul says book of life, it seems like they probably understood a little bit of what he was talking about. Then in Revelation 3, verse 5, we find... We find... Uh, the letter to Sardis, who's a church who their works are dead. And John, Jesus is writing through John, says, He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments and will not be blotted out, will not blot his name out from the book of life, but will confess his name before my Father, which is before his angels. 
So then it, it's, it, you think like, okay, well, you'll, you won't be blotted out if you endure, if you continue, um, if you overcome. So then the question is, does this mean that somehow your name is written in a book when you get saved, and then it can be blotted out in the future? Or, as the Old Testament seems to indicate, does it mean that you're, everyone's name is written out of the book, in the book, and then everyone who sins' name is blotted out of the book? And, and, and how is it that he says, but the righteous will enter into heaven if we understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? And so we have a little bit of a conundrum, and I think that the gospel first starts to answer this. The problem isn't completely solved with this, and you're going to still be left unsure. But in, in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, we find how the Old Testament sinners were not blotted out of the book. Romans 4, 1 to 3 says, What shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So if Abraham's um, justification, if his righteousness was because of his works, then he would have a reason to boast, right? I mean, if I live a life that's worthy of heaven, then at the end of my life, I can say, guys, I did it. Well done, Dan, right? You did it. You, you live the life you need to live in order to get yourself into heaven. But he says, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So don't get it confused. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints are all saved by faith in God's grace, in God's salvation, in the sacrifice that he will provide. Whether it's something he will do in the future and you're just trusting that he's going to do it in the case of the Old Testament saints, or in the New Testament, that we look back at Christ and we say, he did it, he finished it. We trust that finished sacrifice. So that's where the the white robes come from. That's where our names are found remaining in the book of life. And it would be wonderful if that could be wrapped up in a tidy little bow, because now we know that everybody's name is written in the book of life. Sinners are blotted out, but if you're found in Christ, your name remains, right? It's what we're taught so far. Then we have these silly little passages in Revelation 13, 8 and Revelation 17, 8, and it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So those who dwell, he's talking now about those who are going to be worshiping the Antichrist, and the, those who are worshiping the Antichrist are those who, whose names have not been written in the book of life. But shouldn't it say those whose names have been blotted out of the book of life? Right? That would make more sense. That would follow better. And then in uh, verse... Oh, and just notice that at the end of that, he says, from the foundation of the world. And then in Revelation 17, 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and, it, and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition... And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. At both times that it says those whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, it's talking about people who are worshiping the beast, right? And so what do we do with that? Okay, so 
And I, I think you know that there's, there's four other times in Revelation that the idea of the book of life occurs, and it's that those who are not written in the book or whose names have been blotted out, those are judged and sent into everlasting fire, and those who are written in the book of life enjoy heaven with God forever. So how do we resolve this perfectly? And the answer is, I don't know exactly. But what I do know is that both times that it that people's names are not written in the book of life, it says clearly after that, from the foundation of the world. And that's the only time that the foundation of the world is attached to the idea of the book of life. That's, that's all I got. I don't, I don't actually, I don't have a full resolution to what the book of, how the book of life works, but I think it is helpful to realize that from all other passages in the Bible, it seems like everyone's name is written in a book, sinners are blotted out, but those who are found in Christ, those who have the righteousness of Christ, those names are those that are found in the end, remaining written in the book of life. I think the foundation of the world is attached to this, and I think that's part of God's omniscience, part of God's knowing past, present, future. That's, that, that's how my mind tries to understand it, but I, I think I'm getting into a place where my mind can't comprehend anymore. Does that make sense? I'm getting to the edge of my comprehension when I'm trying to understand this. Yep. So were, were they predestined to eternal damnation? Yeah, there are vessels of wrath. Yeah, that, that, that could be. And that's, a hard, that's one of those hard things and if we, were, if we got into that discussion, uh, we'd be here for three or four more days. So, yeah. yes? But I just wonder, like, in the Old Testament, the Book of Life, I, I wonder if that Book of Life is talking about physical death, completely physical death. Yeah. We're both we're alive and die. And I wonder if there's a difference between the land Book of Life or eternal life. Yeah, there could be. Yeah. Yep. Um, definitely in the Old Testament, they didn't, uh, they didn't, talk as much about the heaven. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, is the, it's the passage that does talk about eternal life and eternal damnation, and, and it's mentioned the book that they're written in. That's, that's the only time that like, it feels like it is, definitely. But I did, ha- I did have that thought that, like, hey, maybe this is just, they're dead. And maybe it is just that they die. But. There's also something in Greek culture, where if you're in a city, your name is in a book, and from Revelation, in John's first century, mm-hmm. that their names, if they did something criminal, or they were blotted out, they were just improper that book. Right. So, and they lost their children, and they were killed in that city. Right. I don't know. So, then, then what happens when, when names are written in the book of life, but then when you do something wrong, you're, you're blotted out, just like in the cities, then wouldn't that indicate that you've just lost your salvation because you did something really bad? You know, Unless the Lamb's book of life is a different book. But those found written in the book of life are those who... Yeah, are those who go to heaven. So does that mean that you can you can be written in the book of life, but then have your name blotted out later on in the future? Like that not being written, not the Lamb's book of life. Okay. Yep. I think that there is a connection 
But I also thought that trying to start explaining that connection got me into like another, like I said, three or four days of trying to walk through it. To, to, because, okay, so I guess what I'll say is our, our church, um, we have a, a good variety of people in our church. Some of them are Calvinists, meaning they believe that everything is predetermined, everything is predestined, and God chose everything. And so ultimately, um, those who are born again, who are given the Spirit of God, will come to faith. And then a lot of our church uh, are not Calvinists. So we believe that um, people must respond to the gospel in faith and that it's not... Uh, that some people, I guess the best way to say it is that, that, that the Spirit of God convicts different people some of them respond in faith, and some of them respond in disbelief. Um, where the Calvinists would say the Spirit of God will convict those who are predetermined, pre predestined to be saved. And all those who are chosen, who are convicted, will be saved, and no one else will. Um, and so, as a, for me, as a maybe two-point two point Calvinist, if you want to call that, which is, some of you is, means nothing, and that's fine. But uh, I, I tend to think that the ch that choosing of God is also intertwined with his omniscience. So that, that um, he does know before the foundation of the world all those who are saved, who will be saved and won't be saved. Uh, I just struggle more with the idea that the Spirit of God doesn't give a choice, that, that, that people aren't choosing to reject because they never can. And I think that's my like difference, is that some people choose to accept, some people choose to reject, where a Calvinist would say that act of choosing is a work. Well, I think we do, but if, if okay, so Calvinism would teach, the question is, don't we have freedom to accept or reject? So Calvinism would teach that we have freedom in our nature, but our nature is fallen, we're sinners, and so we choose to reject every single time. Every time human beings are given the choice, we choose to reject. And the only way we don't reject is if the Spirit of God comes into us and, and, and we become born again, essentially, by the Spirit before we have faith. And, and because of that, it is all of grace. So not even, it wasn't even like a good thing that we did in choosing to trust Christ, that it was the Spirit of God in us that caused that decision to be made. Does that make sense? Where the way I see it, and the way, what they would say is that um, this, the Spirit or God doesn't speak to dead people. We're dead in our sins. So the Spirit has to give us life so that he can call us. We're not called and the way I see it is that the Spirit of God does speak to dead people. That's part of what he does, is that he, he's there to convict the world and convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I think that, that if, you're, if you're a Calvinist, then, there, then double predestination is a given. Yeah, it's necessary. And I'm trying to, and, and I, like, as I've studied this, I'm trying to wrap my understanding of God's character and also of a lot of verses that 
indicate that like how many like how many times did I want to call you but you would not? And Jesus is talking about uh, as a mother hen, I wanted to gather you but you left. And then Ezekiel when he talks about that God does not have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Um, I'm trying to to wrap my brain around the character of God where it feels like he does love the world. He certainly loves his children in a very unique and special way, but he also loves the world. And how can you say you love the world when you created them for eternal destruction? So there has to be be some kind of um, rejection that's made of him that's where there's a real decision made, where there is an actual option. Because otherwise, Jesus died for the elect and the elect alone. And so he did not die for those who are not, not elect. Right. Jesse, that's right on. And I think that the, the idea that there is beauty in a mystery and that, that some of this, we're trying to understand like this verse that teaches this and this one that seems to teach something that, that our brains can't perfectly fit those puzzle pieces together, but, but you know they do. And, and we talk a lot about how they do. And I think what happens, I think the problem that happens is that you, you decide, like, here are the two arguments, this is my argument, and then you spend the rest of your time telling all these people why they're wrong, right? And I would say part of what you're doing is you're choosing to emphasize this side of the argument. You're emphasizing, maybe it's you're emphasizing the sovereignty of God. And so you're, and which is, God is sovereign, absolutely. But, but you can, you can, Talk about that to the exclusion of the free will that he really has given people and the love that he really does have for the world, okay? The, the, the offers that he's granted that anyone who believes, all who repent, will be saved. But you can do the same thing on this side, where then it's, it's kind of like all of those verses mean something completely different and you just got to like, you just got to relearn your Bible and then you'll figure out that actually when it's talking about election, it's always talking about um, the, the Jewish people, it's always national election, it's never individual. Um, and so you kind of like start to explain away all of what's there. And I think that, that this is, okay, do you remember Packer's, I think I use this analogy, Packer's book, where he talks about the balconiers and the travelers. And the balconiers are above and they, they're like talking about the big picture, but they're not actually making real decisions along the, to the journey. And the travelers are the ones that are like, they can't see the whole thing, but they're actually there. I think we live as travelers. And, so, and I think that, that, that overemphasizing Calvinism is placing yourself always on the balconier side of it, where you're looking down, trying to understand and explain the whole course, but forgetting that there's actually people there making real decisions, and they don't know the end from the beginning. And, and God, I think, has given free will to, to reject or accept Christ as he calls. Okay, the question is, 1 Thessalonians 2.3, how does that fit? 2 Thessalonians 2.3. So let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Uh, It's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. Um, I, I think like probably to give you a full answer, I'd want to spend a bit more time with it. Uh, but he's, 
he's talking about the coming of Christ, the second coming, and that before this, before Christ comes, there would be some kind of falling away or some kind of apostasy. Um, I, I think that like, I'm not sure it would necessarily have to be uh, born again believers that are committing apostasy, that are like falling away from true faith, true being born again faith, or um, or falling away from a semblance of Christianity of of religion. Um, I mean, it could be of Judaism too. So I I probably want to spend more time with it, but. Yeah, I think that no word, no letters from us. Yeah, he doesn't want them to be shaken or troubled. Right, he is telling them that, that the second coming hasn't happened yet, but then he's, he's giving that uh, the, the day will not come until there's some kind of falling away first, that the man of sin would be real. And I guess like that, what that falling away is, isn't clear to me. And so falling away as in falling away from a belief in God to worshiping the Antichrist, like, I don't know. But I'd, I'd want us. So I will look at it. All right. Okay. Uh, what time do we have right now? In the same text that you just read, you know, um, number 13, mm-hmm. he does speak that, um, that we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, believers, Beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Yeah. And so the group of people he's speaking to, he just at the end of that conversation says, We're giving thanks because he's chosen you for salvation from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's a great point. And and uh, um it doesn't like answer what the falling away is, but it is interesting that there is a reassurance after that of the people who are believers to say, you won't fall, or you, you, like, you're saved. You have that, right? And I think, like, in, as you said that, Hebrews, one of the hardest passages on uh, the loss of salvation or on eternal security for people who believe in eternal security is uh, Hebrews chapter 6, particularly verses 4 to 8. So maybe we'll conclude with this, uh, but we certainly won't get deep into it. Um, just so we have the context, in 5.13, or 5.11 to 14, uh, he's, he's uh, correcting the Hebrew believers because they, they're, they're walking in Christ, they're saved, they're born again, but they're, there's no growth. There's no like, taking the word and applying it. And he's saying, like, like, you should be at this point teachers, but instead I have to go back and teach you the very first things again. Like, let's go, people. Grow up. Let's become, like, fruit-bearing Christians. And then, so therefore, he says in, in chapter 6, verse 1, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That's the goal, is perfection, not in sinlessness, but in completion, in maturity. So that's the context. And then in verse 4, he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come 
If they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it, and brings forth herbs, meat for them, by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh to cursing, whose end is to be burned. So those are the verses that are difficult. And there are different ways to understand that. Um, one way is that it's understood as a hypothetical warning. So this is a warning to true believers that if, if you don't continue in your faith, if you fall away, then there's nothing left for you. But, praise the Lord, you can't fall away because you're kept by the power of God. So, so really, this is hypothetical. He's just giving this warning to be part of what God uses to keep them, to encourage them to continue on. Okay, that's one, one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that these people who have tasted the heavenly gift and were once enlightened and all those things, that's talking about somebody who, who is not really a believer at all. They've tasted, but they haven't really swallowed, right? They, they've had a part of it. Um, I think if you study, uh, when, when I study the Greek words there, that is a hard it's a hard view to hold on to because the words he uses, it's like just like Jesus tasted death for all of us. We wouldn't say like he just like had a nibble. It's like, no, Jesus truly fully died for us. And so when I read that description, I think he's trying to describe somebody who was born again. Okay? Another way of understanding it is, is he's saying you can't be renewed again to repentance when, like, when you've already been saved. So he's trying to encourage believers who are falling away to keep going on. But if they, if they fall away or if they, if they fall into sin and they struggle, the answer is not, you need to be born again again. Okay. It's not that like you weren't, you lost your salvation and now you need to regain it. And so you need to ask Jesus to save you again. He's saying, no, that's putting Jesus in open shame. That's saying that, that his death for you wasn't sufficient the first time. That you need it again. But you don't need it again. You don't need to be renewed again unto repentance. You did that already. You just need to grow up. And so this is to the Christian who is struggling and walking the wrong direction and saying, get back up, start moving the right direction. And then the example that he gives when he talks about a, a farmer, that the farmer, um, what's meant to happen is that the water falls on the earth, okay? The earth would be the person in this situation. And the person is supposed to bring forth fruit from the earth because the water, the water, the word of God is falling on the earth. But if they're not bringing forth fruit, and if instead they're bringing forth thorns and thistles and briars, then at the end, these thorns and thistles and briars will be burned. And the way I understand that is, as a, as a Christian, we are meant to be, to be bearing fruit in our life, right? We've got the water of the Spirit of God and the Word of God falling on us. And so God is tending his, his field as a farmer does, and we're supposed to be bearing the fruit that he deserves. But if instead what we bring forth in our life, if the works of our life are thorns and thistles and briars, just know that someday all of those things will be burned up, okay? But... The interesting part of all of this is he concludes that section saying, Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. So he's talking about things that accompany salvation, not salvation itself. Though we thus speak. Okay, so, so we're, we're talking this way, but guys, we know that, that you, you're going to be just fine, that you are going to bring forth the things that accompany salvation. 
And then in verse 19, he says, which hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, which endures into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is forentered, even Jesus made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, so he, he then ends that chapter by talking about how sure and steadfast our hope is because Christ accomplished it for us as our high priest, right? And so the confusion of those verses shouldn't take away from the confidence of the rest of the verses. Does that make sense? Okay. There's so many more places we could go to, and I, I, don't, I don't think we'll come back here next week again unless you really want to. But if you want to have a one-on-one conversation, we'll do that. I'll look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 2 and see if I can sort out that better. I might not be able to, but we'll see. Um, other than that, thank you for being here today. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.